0: Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Tapestry Board. I'm your host, Darun Sakrani.
1: And I am Saaz Adirvan. Today we have a guest who we've been really looking forward to. And she has written several books, uh, particularly Sindh in 2018, The Making of Exile, Sindhi, Hindus, and the Partition of India in 2014, and I Will and I Can, The Story of Jehan College in 2011. Nandita has been engaged in extensive research on Sindhi culture and history since 1997 and has also traveled widely across Sindh. For us, whenever we have a question about Sindh or there's something that we're not sure about, Nandita is the person that uh, we would turn to because she has been doing this for such a long time and the quality of her scholarship, the quality of her presentation, And the way in which she welcomes new researchers into the field is absolutely role model stuff. And uh, thank you so much, Nandita, for joining us, giving us your time. I do know how very busy you are, so it really means a lot that you come on to talk to us. We wanted you to talk to us, especially about partition, because having read your book, The Making of Exile, it is absolutely fantastic. It covers every aspect of partition. Uh, so maybe we can start by looking at how the situation since started changing once partition was announced.
2: Okay, so first, uh, thank you, Saz and Tarun, for inviting me on the show. I'm really happy to be part of your series. Thanks for your kind words also, Saz. Very generous of you to say all that. No, no, very much. We are,
0: we are actually very honored that you joined the show. <laughs> it's lovely to have you and we'd love to hear more from you.
1: Thank you. Uh, so if we look at Sindh, mm-hmm. uh, when Partition was just announced, was the situation changing?
2: Partition was actually announced by Mount Patton on the 3rd of June, 1947. In Sindh, Sindhi Muslims had a, approximately three-quarter majority. So they were, of course, delighted that the creation of Pakistan was imminent. And many of them thought that if they be able to lord it over the Hindus. Now, for the last, say, two decades before Partition... Um, communal relations had become uh, very strained, very fraught throughout India and in Sindh as well. So Sindhi Muslims were delighted. They thought they would be able to nod it over the Hindus because the Hindus had had a disproportionate control over the bureaucracy, education, trade, finance. So the Muslims thought they would get back their lands, which had been mortgaged with the Hindus, for free. And in some cases, in some, uh, with some Sindhi Muslims, they thought That they would take over Hindu property if the Hindus migrated. Now, it was exactly this which triggered great fear among the Sindhi Hindus who dreaded being discriminated against, or worse becoming the targets of violence. At this time, say 3rd June we are talking about, there had been enough reports of communal violence coming to Sindh from across the country from August 1946, from Bengal, North Kali, Punjab, many places. Sindh had remained relatively peaceful but, to use the words of Roger Pierce, this was a nervous piece, meaning that there was a lot of tension under the surface. In those early months, there were instances of communal harassment, especially in the Sindhi countryside, where Hindus were fewer in number and had less power. So you had cases where Hindu crops were seized, Hindu lands were forcibly taken over. And on the other side, you had influx of muhajir, that was Muslim refugees from India. And they, being homeless were eyeing Hindu property, and even forcibly occupying this Hindu property. So Hindus began to feel more and more uncomfortable in sin, as even before the occurrence of partition.
0: Was this just outside the cities, or was it uh, fairly common across the board? I'll, and I'll I'll get to why I'm asking the question yeah, as well. Yeah. Because, I, at least with my grandparents, right, for the longest time, when we were able to get some of the stories out, from them or some thoughts, it was always about the harmony or the, you know, mutual feeling and the, the brotherly feeling and, and you know, the, the affection and even people being helped out of the country in many right, ways. Right, so, right. So I'm just trying to reconcile that memory with what you just said. And, you know, is there, is there a period that they've intentionally blanked out or is this, you know, something that's specific to areas?
2: Uh, No, so I don't think they're blanking it out per se. I think uh, at the ground level, there were many, many innumerable cases of individual friendships. Okay, the kind that you described. I've heard of cases where a Sindhi Muslim escorted his Sindhi Hindu friend to the border, till the very border, to Munabao, and then came back, you know, and they were like weeping when they parted. There are innumerable instances of these kind of friendships. Even today, and I think we live in uh, increasingly intolerant times, one can come across instances where you have individual friendships, but right. the larger picture is different.
0: Got it. I think okay. that's
2: what, what was happening. Hindus were getting increasingly nervous in said. This is exactly what I was coming to. There were many instances where Sindhi Muslims told their Sindhi Hindu friends to stay on, that they would protect
0: them. Ah, right.
2: That's why in the absence of actual violence with these assurances and with the history, you know, Sindhi Hindus had been a minority in sin, the religious minority for centuries. So they thought, okay, this is one more milestone that they would pass, but then things would settle down and they would continue as minorities. But yes, things were extremely um, strained, I would say.
0: And so was there an instance that triggered suddenly that exodus or was this feeling just building up to a point where uh, gradually people were moving out and then they saw others moving out and then so they started leaving?
2: I would say that there were three different waves of migration. The first two waves were not that large, and the third wave was the biggest. So the first wave was, again, a smaller, quieter wave. It was uh, those Hindi Hindus who could clearly see the writing on the wall, and they felt they had no future in Pakistan. And they decided to get out, um, I think, once partition was announced, once Pakistan was announced. So these were people who began to leave in May, June, July, even August. They were the lucky ones because they were able to sell their properties at a better price. They were able to come more comfortably, also resettle with relatively great risk. So this went on June, July, August. And then there, were, there was communal violence in the city of Quetta on 20th and 21st of uh, August. And a lot of these uh, uh, the Hindus who were victims there, many of them were Sindhi. Some were Punjabi, some were Punjabi Sikhs and some in Sindhi Hindus. And that violence really struck dread into the hearts of Sindhis in Sindh. And this was followed soon after by violence in the city of Navamsha, especially when there was a train leaving, which was carrying Sikhs. Now, Sikhs, of course, were targeted because Punjabi Sikhs had played a big role in the violence in Punjab. So Sikhs were targeted everywhere. So these Sikhs were also uh, you know, pulled out and killed off the train. That also, combined with the Quetta violence, triggered another wave of panic, a larger wave, and people began to leave. And you find many, especially in Hyderabad, you find many people who left at that time, and they would have very similar stories to tell that the trains were packed. If you read Ram Bakshani's memoirs, or many people, even my father left at that time, my father and his family, they had the same story. They couldn't actually board a train because it was packed. How old was your father at that time? He was, uh, he would have been 16. Yeah. And they lived
1: in Hyderabad. They lived in Hyderabad. That's right. Yeah. What about your mom's family?
2: So my mom's family is from Karachi and uh, they had a very different uh, story. My mom actually came to India three times in 1947 and she went back twice and then the third time she came for good. First time she came for a holiday in the summer, she went back. And then after the announcement of partition, my grandfather was a... Uh, very senior in the Sindh High Court, he was friends with these ministers and Hidayatullah told him, take your girls out. So he sent his daughters away. But my mother was the youngest and she was homesick. So she went back and then she came for the third time, she came to India in October.
0: Was that, and that was it? That was, then she that turned was it. There. Then, then right. she never went back. Right, yeah. okay.
2: Yeah. So I'm telling you, so that was the second wave. The wave mm-hmm. after uh, Quetta and Nawabshah. And uh, the third wave was really after the the major pogrom in Karachi on 6th of January, where Sikhs were attacked first in a Gurdwara in Karachi, the Ratan Talao Gurdwara, and then the Gurdwara was set on fire. And then this violence spread to many other parts of Karachi, and Hindus and Sikhs were attacked and looted. There was a lot of arson as well uh, of um, Hindu homes or, uh, for example, the Congress office in Karachi was burnt. things like that. But it should be remembered, it's very important to remember, this is again coming back to the point you made, Tarun, that especially in the pogrom of, uh, of 6th January in Karachi, and even in the Quetta violence, there were innumerable cases of Muslims, whether they were Sindhi Muslims or Muhajirs or others, who were helping the Hindus and protecting them, sometimes at risk to their, their, their own selves. Their own life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So there are many, many instances of that. So I think think basically partition just brought out the best and the worst of humanity.
1: And you mentioned about your your dad was traveling by train and your mom would have traveled by ship.
2: So my mom, I think the first two times she came by ship and the last time she came by plane. And my dad actually twice, they tried to get onto a train, but they couldn't because the trains were so full. This is mid-September of uh, 1947. So finally, they too came by plane. So they had to go by road
1: to Karachi. Yeah.
2: And it's interesting, my dad remembers telling me, he was, he was telling me that he remembers that um, in the plane, children were taken onto people's laps. Mm-hmm. This is like way back, you know, and safety norms were not what they are today. So, yeah. And they just had to take as many people as they could. So small children, I'm talking about, really? not, not bigger ones. They were, they were seated in the uh, laps of their family members.
0: Wow. And that plane must have been a limited number of people. It must have been a very select group that could get out on a plane, right?
2: My father's family was not that well off. So I'm surprised that uh, they could, they somehow got it through, I think, some family connections. They got these tickets. Right. These were Dakotas. So I think, you know, just two, uh, two sets of seats, you know, in the, in the plane throughout. Right. Probably carrying 40, 50 people. I don't know. Not too many.
1: Not a large number. And no luggage, right? They could have hardly taken anything with them. Yes,
2: yes. Yeah, they left everything behind. They thought they were coming back. Once things settled down, you know.
1: But then people did pack. There were people who took all their things. There were some who tried to take their things.
2: There were people who were able to pack a lot of their things and bring them. There were some who did it by train, but mostly those who came by ship. Because there was more scope for that. It had been just two years after World War II, after the end of World War II. And uh, the Indian economy was in very bad shape. So there was all kinds of rationing. Both the Indian government and the Pakistan government, they were very concerned about essential commodities not leaving the borders. You know, so there were these searches going on. Very often the searches were not even conducted by government authorities. They were, for example, in Sindh, they were conducted sometimes by the National Guards. You know how it is all over South Asia. They put people with power uh, in positions of power and uh, they don't they don't come from very wealthy backgrounds and then they are confiscating what they like and it it just uh, deteriorates you know it just goes downhill from there. So it happens on both sides of the border. I don't think
0: it's limited to just South Asia but we can visit that.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely both sides of the border are similar. Remember Aruna Jetwani's story about how they opened the trunk. Yes. yes. The picture of the bee right on top, which was there. Right. And the guard, I mean, this burly pathan who were, they were so frightened of, he knelt down and he bowed to that picture. <laughs> the boy is okay now. Help them get on the chair <laughs>
2: Yeah, so different people tried all kinds of tricks, you know, to get
1: their belongings out and some were successful, some were not. But and I don't think this was a trick. She packed, her grandmother had packed the trunk and there was, it just so happened that the were protecting them, right? In this case, in this case, yes, not a trick, but
2: uh, this really speaks to the whole uh, composite uh, fabric in some sense that
1: where you had so many Hindus who believed in peace. But you also hear like somebody uh, was saying about how they fried bhajiyas which had gold coins inside and they carried them, which it seemed really so unlikely to me. But I heard this from quite a few people. Gold doesn't melt when you it's malleable, but it, it, it doesn't lose itself. It wouldn't lose itself in the hot oil, you know.
0: Pakoras play a significant role in the history. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know somebody who uh, they, they were not
2: allowed to bring unstitched cloth. So in his family, um, all the the men, they took the unstitched cloth and tied them into turbans, into pagris. You know? Oh,
0: wow. Okay. Yeah,
2: that's how they brought the cloth. Huh. And then the minute they crossed the border, they were coming in the train. So the minute they crossed the border, they took off the pagris because they were feeling hot.
0: Yeah, I just remember my grandmom always telling us she wore five saris and left. And that's all she had, basically. But like you said, Nadita, you know, they were expecting to hopefully go back at some point because their neighbors or somebody had told them don't worry we'll watch this for you when you come back it'll all be as it is so they were expecting we'll leave with five clothes we'll figure out something temporarily and we can always come back
1: and that's interesting also how some people remember every detail of the journey and some even though they're, they're quite old you know in their teens or late teens they can't remember anything that's very true One of the things that we wanted to ask you is about how uh, there were so many women who had to travel alone with the children and uh, uh, the elders of the family. Lastly, the Sindhwarki wife During the war, there wasn't much travel between. I mean, the sea Routes were closed, right? So either the men were stranded far away or they were stranded at home and they couldn't do any business. And then after the war, things started moving. So people moved out and soon after that partition took place. So most, a lot of the women were alone.
2: Yes, that's true. So in those cases, uh, there were a lot of these women-headed uh, families who were traveling on their own. And uh, here, I think you should remember that women were the ultimate minority in Sindh because they were Hindu women in a land dominated by Muslim men. And okay, it may have been different in, uh, say, Hyderabad or Karachi and, you know, bigger, bigger cities. But in uh, smaller towns and villages, they were, they had to observe parda and they would wear chadars or they would, you know, what they would take out, what they call akhdi. Yeah. So they would do that. There were enough reports of rapes and abductions taking place in other parts of India, especially in Punjab, which was right next door. So women, girls, children, they were the first to be sent away, you know, just like I mentioned about my mom. and, And there are countless cases like that. Among the Bibles too, the women would have been told to leave, regardless, you know, don't wait for the men to come. And there were other cases in which um, uh, the men may have been in sin, but they chose to stay behind. So this travel without men was quite an eye-opening ordeal for some of these women. It was quite a traumatic experience, especially for those who are used to parda. For them, it was like a possible exposure, you know. And even Popati Hirandani writes about it, although she was not confined to Pardha in Hyderabad. But in her memoirs, which is Mirji Hayati Ajaasuno Rupavarku, there was this group, large group of women who were just traveling on their own. And they landed up in Jodhpur on the train. And uh, they didn't have any relatives there. And those first few days, they were really at sea. And it was very difficult for them to fend for themselves because of the searches and seizures, because a lot of their stuff had been confiscated. They just had the clothes on their back. They were scared to spend because they didn't know how long it would last. So they were scared to, you know, even spend on food, on something as basic as food.
1: I remember this, uh, that they had a neighbour who came and brought food only for the children.
2: It's interesting how memory works. I interviewed Popati Hiram Nandani's cousin who came on the train with her. Now, I knew Popati myself, but she had passed away by then. And when I interviewed her cousin, her cousin had hardly anything to say about this journey. And, you know, and Popati wrote a whole chapter about it.
0: Were they the same age, roughly, or?
2: Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Maybe this uh, other lady was a few years younger, but not that much younger.
0: So when they were coming across, you, you mentioned Jodhpur, were they going, they didn't know anybody. So were these going in, were they going straight into camps or or were they finding their own accommodation or how were they living it out?
2: In this particular case, there were no camps at that time and they were able to find some, some accommodation had been arranged from before. So they did stay there till one or two of the brothers came and then they kind of moved later on to Bombay and established themselves there. You know, when we are talking about women and Sindhi women and partition, I would say that in at that time, it was a traumatic experience and, uh, you know, really shook up their world. But in some ways, partition was also beneficial to Sindhi women. It, it helped them leave parda behind. It helped them have greater independence. And women were able to take up uh, jobs and... Uh, Sometimes they were compelled by their circumstances to to
1: fend for their families. But they were able to build careers and to have, you know, more freedom in their lives. And in many cases, soon after partition, they were the providers. They were making papad and... And pickles and so on. Yeah, yeah. In some families, yeah. There's this story by Sundari Uttam Chandani. Guri. Yeah. There's this middle-class family where uh, somebody walks in selling paper, and the man is, he looks at her and he's absolutely stunned. So basically it turns out that he had known this woman, he, she was a young woman in the neighborhood where he grew up and he obviously had a crush on her or something like that. And now he and his wife were settled after partition, but Buri, her husband didn't have a job. So she was selling paper. And what I really loved about that was the way she was so relaxed about who she was and this the fact that she was selling and looking after her family, uh, it had just made her a different person. I mean, you know, she was not complaining at all. The wife was a complainer. She was not yeah. happy with her situation. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, this woman who had gone out into the world alone and was, you know, uh, her son was so troubled he would run away and try and get a job and then you know she would have to console him and bring him back uh, I read this in a translation by Rita Kotari uh, and the you know you know the one I'm talking about it's called Unbordered Memories and I would totally uh, recommend that because it's a it's a collection which takes you into that time and mm-hmm. uh, it's from both sides of the border. so And it deals with so many complex issues. You know, when we write, we want people to understand certain things. I got a lot from that book. I think uh, I personally knew
2: somebody like this Buri, like a Paparwari, who used to come to our house. and But you could see how it had aged her. You know, I don't know if uh, mm-hmm. it's meant that is mentioned in Sundi Uttam story, but that kind of hard work and, and stress, you know, that, 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 I think, ages, uh, aged them much faster than it, it would, the say, the middle-class women live, living a comfortable life. I
1: also read another book, which is called Beyond Diamond Rings by Kusum Chopra. And that's her, she's taken stories about the women uh, from her own family. And it's a book of imagination. Have you read it? I think I did read it a long, long time ago. It's about 10 years, 8, 10 years ago. Uh, But, you know, she actually describes trauma, which, which nobody talks about, like rape and abduction, which definitely happened. And, you know, nobody talks about that. We've lost a generation who could have told us what happened.
2: I think there may have been some rapes and some abductions, but definitely not on the scale of Punjab. I think also in that time, in that era, uh, there was a lot of, uh, I mean, many authors, many writers have even talked about it the power of rumor, you know? So one doesn't really know the numbers, you know, as to how many women in Sindhi women were raped or abducted or what, one doesn't really know.
1: Even the violence, I I, uh, interviewed someone who I know quite well actually, and his grandfather, you know, they were packing to leave, Mm-hmm. Uh, and all the things were taken to the station, to the railway station. And everything disappeared, including him, you know. Yeah. And okay. then his body was found in a sack under a railway bridge with the head cut off. So it's not like it didn't happen at all. Yes, yes, of course but not. Uh, yeah. And he said nobody ever talked about it. He knew this had happened. Mm. He wasn't born at that time. Mm. Nobody talked about it. So, there may, I mean, you know, again, we've lost the people who could have told us. Right, right. There were, there were
2: many cases like this, I would say, in uh, late August and through September of 47, maybe even in, in October, you know, where very often it was communal violence coupled with theft, coupled with the desire to loot, because people were leaving, they were carrying their valuables, and they were prime targets. One of my earliest interviews was this guy. He was telling me so proudly and so happily, he said, do you know the most amazing thing happened to me during partition? And I said, what was it? And he said, he left with his wife and his small child and they left from Larkana and the wife was wearing all her jewelry. You know, the way your your grandmother wore all her saris. She wore all her jewelry, like even the mother-in-law's bangles. she put them all on and it was covered with long sleeves. Yeah. And this man, they had to take a tanga to the station. And uh, the tanga, halfway, he picked up someone else. And, and this Sindhi Hindu was terrified. He said, was this predetermined? Are we going to get attacked? But it was just a casual lift, as it turned out. So they came by tanga to the station. They came from the station to Karachi. They went to Karachi airport, took a flight. And he says, the most amazing thing is that nobody attacked me. Nobody looted me. In fact, I was helped by Sindhi Muslims. The point that I'm trying to make is that uh, they expected to be looted. Yeah. You know. There was fear. There was so much. Yes. Nobody yeah.
1: going to happen. Because
0: they had probably seen it around or read or heard about it from the other side or, you know, as you said, in Punjab, it was...
1: Well, if you look at Punjab, there's not a single family that did not have a story of barbaric violence. Not a single. Mm. I, I only understood that when I read Aanchar Manutra. Whereas here, it was different. There was fear. And often people ask, you know, the uh, Sindhi Muslims, the Sindhis of Sindh, they say, why did the Hindus go? Why did you go? Because they don't understand what happened. They really think that it was just... Uh,
2: you know, Shimra,
1: it was not real.
2: probably it's it was not something that was there on their radar. It's not like a, a physical fact, right? no, it's it's a climate of of fear. And but the climate of fear existed only for the Hindus.
0: They almost didn't understand it or they weren't seeing it or
2: no, So the Sindhi Muslims at the time understood it. But right. these are
1: younger generations who didn't see it. Because there's no statistics of head being chopped off, you know. There's no cases of that kind of trains filled with dead bodies. There was just this one pogrom in Karachi, and then why did you all leave? You know. You know it's too long a story for them for you know uh, to explain. It's to them. so complex. I uh, someone who I interviewed was must have been about eight years old or nine years old, and he used to play cricket with the boys who lived across the melon uh, to brothers And he said one day they had some kind of scrap, and one of them says to him, "We are going to get that house of yours." Eight-year-olds.: Wow. Yeah. So obviously, that had been uh, in the conversation at home. Mm-hmm. I mean yeah. so somebody
0: had mentioned it, probably. Yeah.
1: Uh, right. And we can move.: in. <laughs> So what happened after the Hindus left? Well um,
2: What happened was basically, even before the Hindus left, as I had mentioned earlier, there were a lot of Mujahids coming in from Pakistan, uh, from India, sorry, Muslim refugees coming in from India. And they were uh, looking for homes, they were looking for uh, livelihoods, and they were not happy. The camps were full, camp life was anyway appalling, just this way it was over here. So um, there were forcible occupations of Hindu property, even while the Hindus were sitting in the house, they would walk in, say a Muhajir family would walk in and the men would say, okay, now we need a place to go. So we are going to live here. And they would say, this is, this is Pakistan, this, this is a country meant for us, so you need to get out. And this would actually scare the Hindus into getting out. And in some cases, in Karachi at least, Hindu houses were sometimes marked outside, you know. Like uh, with a bit of sign yes. saying this is a Hindu house, you know, sort of marking it, uh, singling it out for uh, attention, and possibly even attack.
0: I remember my dad telling me that story at some point. They had started seeing marks across the houses as like either these are targets to keep an eye out on or that will be eventually taken over. Like you said, you know, it we will take that house over eventually sort of thing.
2: So nobody likes being marked as a target, you know. What I was saying is, is there were a lot of Muhajirs coming in. And once the Hindus left, which was, say, by mid-48, the bulk of the Hindus left, what happened in Sindh was actually a demographic event, which was that there were so many Muhajirs, so many refugees. And they had a very scant regard or scant respect for Sindhi culture. They found Sindhi culture very rustic. They didn't really... Um, think very highly of the Sindhi faith, Sindhi Muslim faith in peers and fakirs, which goes against mainstream Islam. With the result that Sindhis themselves began to be dominated in their own land. They had kind of looked forward to lording it over Sindh once the Hindus left. But once the Hindus left, the Muhajirs came in and began lording it over them. The Pakistan central government, which was in Karachi at that time, at that time Karachi was the capital, the Pakistan central government was also dominated by mainly Muhajirs and a few Punjabis. Like, Jinnah was a Muhajir. Uh, Liaqat Ali Khan was a Muhajir, you know, technically speaking. They found themselves being sidelined in their own homeland. This kind of domination, it varied from the sidelining of the Sindhi language and Sindhi culture, and even the Sindhi people. Over the centuries, you've had different forms of domination, where natural resources in Sindh are being used either by the government or by private organizations without adequate recompense to the Sindhi people. Or you have uh, other forms of domination, where the Sindhis claim that the waters of the Indus river are being unfairly siphoned off to Punjab and other northern provinces, you know. So all this domination, which started first with the muhajirs and then went on by the Punjabis, has only grown over the decades. and. Sindhi resentment has also grown over the decades and that had given rise to Sindhi nationalism, to the Sindhi Muslims' demand for autonomy in their own land and to the GSN movement, which was started by GM Syed. And there, are, there, were, there have been other nationalist parties as well, but this is the most well-known one.
0: Some of that over the years has, has sort of... I helped us in a way assimilate into other parts you know kind of like the British mantra of keep calm and carry on sort of <laughs>
1: which uh, according to you they learned from the Sindhis of course
0: <laughs> yeah which was like a little bit of the the uh, you know adaptability okay you're taking our resources chalo chalta we'll go figure something else out you, out you know you want our land chalo hai, we'll go find the land somewhere else so I don't know. I feel like there is some of that that plays into, you know, how we've successfully adapted into from Chile, where we're eating Chilean pakoras, to, you know, in Malta, to Hong Kong, to drinking Johnny Walker somewhere else. You know, <laughs> I think all of that has played a role in, in some of this. And, and again, I could be completely wrong, but I, I have a feeling it, it, you know, has built that resilience in us.
2: Well, I think actually uh, the resilience may have been there for even earlier. I think because, so. Because Sindhis, are, Sindhi Hindus, have been used to being a minority for centuries. Ever since 7-11, you know, when Mohammed bin Qasim came to sin. Or even other I Sindhis think. who came from outside in subsequent years. So they've been used to facing difficulties, facing uh, harassment. They've been used to having to adapt. And that ability to adapt was... On the one hand, it was used also when they traded in other countries, like in Central Asia, I'm talking about the Shikar Puris or the whole Bhaiwan network. And that further encouraged their ability or further improved their ability to adapt. And this also applied to the Amils because they were working for different rulers. First for the Kalhoras and the Talpurs and later the British. So again, mm-hmm. every time you have to adapt, it's a different culture, it's a different language. First Persian with the Talpurs and then English with the British. Another important factor was the Sufi culture, which encouraged a very stoic attitude. I saw it very much in my grandmother. It's there even in your writing, was. It's there in Rampanjwani's stories. I think it was there in that uh, generation. I would say more my grandmother's generation than my parents' generation.
1: I have to say, I'm very happy I've inherited some of that.
0: I think after this podcast, Sars, we should make a T-shirt for all our guests that says, keep calm, I'm Sindhi.
1: <laughs> I think that thing of yes, okay, this has happened. What do I do next? I love that. I mean, that's that's a real um it's a skill isn't it? I mean, of course, it comes from grace, of course.
2: Mm. And you know, these days we all hear about how the importance of gratitude and so on. <laughs> but mm. my my, my uh, Masi tells me about my nani, and she says in those days she never complained and she'd always say shukare, "shukare." They were just grateful for what they had you know mm. that kept them going and uh other than that um i think also it really helped that their skills were very mobile like if you learn how to do business you can do business anywhere if you have a degree you can carry that with you if you know how to establish or run an institution like a school or a college you can do it again and that's exactly what they did. They had very mobile
1: skills. Also, the networks were tremendous. It, at least in the trading community, their networks were tremendous. And that was a gift which continues still today. Right, right, right. It's actually grown. Yeah. It's grown and it's yeah. spread even wider. Yeah. yeah. I think this is one of the things, like when, when I was saying, you know, in Punjab, the story was more about violence. Uh, I think at that time, people didn't, understand the value of, you know, respecting life to the extent that you just quietly fold up and move on. A lot of the Sindhis of that time felt diffident, and that may be one of the reasons they didn't really talk about what had happened, because they thought they'd done something cowardly, you know. They were, that that, that word, I've heard people use that.
2: I'm not sure I would agree with you, Sars, over here. Uh, yes, a lot of people use that word "bhagora" and cowardly, exactly. but these these were non-Sindhis talking about Sindhis, okay? And honestly, I think that the Sindhis or even any other partition survivors, if they didn't talk about those times, they were just too painful to talk about. Just talking about it would make them revisit it, and I think that that applies to any human. You know, if you talk about, if you want to bring up some very painful episode in someone's life, mostly they're not going to want to talk about it. So I, I think that's, that's reason. Really, I don't think they, I mean, I think they were fully justified in what they did. You know, I don't think they felt they were being cowards. You know, I think they did the, they did the wise thing and they knew they did the wise thing, but it was just too
1: painful for them to go back to. Uh, so I just found something I was looking for this, which I knew it was there Uh, This is a a friend of mine, I interviewed her parents and she said, uh, so my, you'll, you'll have to correct me because as you know, I don't know the actual Sindhi words. But what she told me was when we were young, one of the phrases we heard our parents saying when they got together with Sindhi friends was, Yeah, that's true.
2: That's if, it, so. It, it is true, but I, I think I don't think any, there's anything but wrong I think with that. you
1: need that. to first uh, explain what it means.
2: <laughs> so it means that if you give your life for your country, then it is a, it is a, just a small enough thing to give. You know, it's not some great. It's no, no big deal to give your life for the country. But Sindhis uh, sacrifice so, their I country think. for their lives.
1: So what, what I understood it as that Sindhis gave up their country and ran for their lives. That's, you know, I, I think that's what they were trying to get at. So, you know,
2: uh, that's
1: a bit self-deprecatory and they would laugh when they said it.
2: Yeah, so I don't know if they, if they really ran, but the important thing was that they felt that they had to protect their lives. And I think the reason for that, if you if you go we step one, if we step one step back, if you go one step back, I think the reason for that is that
1: they didn't see a
2: future for themselves in Sindh, in the Sindh of Pakistan.
1: So the point I was trying to make yeah. is not that they were trying to protect their lives, but mm-hmm. they just didn't want to generate violence because that was not the right thing to do. That is like, you know, completely unproductive. It's not that they were just running away. They were actually doing the wiser thing of not, you know, like, um, not fighting. True,
2: yeah. Yeah, but I don't think they were, as a minority, you're not in a position to fight. No, you can at the most defend yourself, but that may not
1: even work. So... I think that it was, that, that they did something that was evolved, but... Based on the values of the time and the way that others were being were you know uh, uh, dealing with a very similar situation, the way it was being reported, uh, they were they felt different about what they'd done. They'd, and I think that we need to highlight this, you know, that what they did was really the wise thing to do.
0: I, I think the, the in summary, none of us would be sitting here to do this podcast if they wouldn't have done what they did. <laughs> I think uh I've I've heard both sides, I and, and Anita. I think I've heard the story where I've you know, I, I think one of my Dada's cousins or somebody mentioned this that we what was the bravery in fighting? We wanted to protect our families and our lives, and that's where the bravery lied. So we we left, right? And that was the sensible thing to do at the time. But they also had to, uh, you know, take on the feedback or, you know, the, the sort of derogatory comments from others about like, oh, you guys just fled. You didn't fight. You had no honor sort of thing. So they, they did what they viewed as the brave and right thing at the time. Mm-hmm. But when they resettled, they also heard the other comments, but they sort of just like either laughed it off or, you know, just sucked it up and moved the on right, sort of thing.
1: I think this is one of the reasons they didn't talk, because of all this feeling around them that they had left without fighting, which was bad, which, of course, in the context of today's values, it was not bad. It was the right thing to do. You know, we we want, uh, we don't want to take up arms, do we? I mean, sensible people don't want to do that. But yeah, so uh, coming to the resettlement mm-hmm. in Bombay and in the other places, how did that go?
2: When Sindhi Hindus arrived in India, they generally settled down pretty much where they had arrived or nearby. So we're looking at the present-day states of Maharashtra, Gujarat, MP and Rajasthan, okay? mostly Western to Central India. Okay? And till the 21st century, 90% of Sindhis in India were still in these states. So it just shows that you know, they really settled down where they were. Now, ironically, when they arrived in India, they thought that their trauma was over. They thought they had escaped from sin from Pakistan, and they thought their trauma was over. And little did they know that they would face new trials and tribulations in India. And uh, so, when you're talking about resettlement, I think Sindhi Hindus, whether you come from the business community or whether you're an Amil, they had at that time, and they continue to have even today, a very strong streak of self-sufficiency and self-respect. So by and large, they were not the type to sit around waiting for handouts or waiting for quotas. They went out in search of a livelihood as soon as they could. Whether it was hawking small items like pens and biscuits and trains, or selling paper or selling goods on the footpaths, or getting jobs, or even starting small businesses on their own. For them, it was very important to be able to stand on their own two feet. You know, And as we talked about earlier, even women contributed. They would make papers or pickles or embroideries or even take up jobs to support their families, all of which, which was relatively very rare in Sindh, you know. And what emerges from the story of the resettlement of Sindhi Hindus is their amazing determination, their enterprise and their hard work. They were just not phased by the fact that even, I mean, living in a new city, no hope, no livelihood. They did whatever they did. And they worked extremely hard. Like refugees in Kalyan camp would make up at four leave home at 5, reach Bombay City at 7, attend morning college and go to work and then go back home only late at night just to catch a few hours of sleep. I mean this level of determination and hard work is just inspiring for me, you know. Mm -hmm. And they also had the chutzpah transplant, transplant I'm saying in commerce, several of their schools and colleges from SINTH to India like Jaiet College or National College, HR College, K.C. College. So which not only gave the professors a job, it provided educational opp- opportunities to Sindhi students and other students. And, uh, and, uh, and ultimately, you're contributing to your adoptive cities, you know. Yeah. So, so it's been quite an inspiring st- story. And saw you've written and spoken about this a lot. I know that. The other thing I want to say here is that they were able to do this despite... Uh, facing um, how shall I put it, negative stereotypes, you know, um, from many people, like this people calling them bhogoras, or people looking down on them. Basically, partition
1: refugees were treated
2: as unwanted in many parts of the subcontinent, in
1: India and Pakistan, inauspicious. Uh, uh, you know, uh, they were considered by families inauspicious, you know. The, people didn't want them coming near them so, because they didn't want their bad luck to rub off
2: on them or something like that. That was, that was may have been a part of it, but uh, there were other reasons as well. I mean, like they were, that we are talking about within families, but say, for example, where you have, uh, say, in Maharashtra and Gujarat, or even elsewhere, even in Agra, for example, uh, the these sellers, <coughs> like merchants, they would be trading, they would be buying, uh, whatever, selling stuff on the roads, on the pavements. And they would be quoting prices cheaper than those in the shops. And the shops were run by the locals. So the locals would resent the traders. So that was one reason. Then they were seen as, you know, people with, in those days, the women would wear suthan jolo, you know. They would not wear bindis. The script was in Arabic. So they were seen as, okay, quasi-Muslim? Are they Hindus? Are they not? What's going on? You know, so that was one part of it. Um, this... Uh, Trade competition in trade was another part of it. So, And the fact that they had not uh, witnessed that level of violence as Punjab or Bengal or whatever, that was another part of it. So to deal with this kind of a negative blowback and still establish yourself, that has been quite a story. But here I also want to say one thing, and that is that there are a fair number of Sindhis if you go to smaller towns like Adipur, for example. Who have not been able to establish themselves that well. Yes. So it's not been a uniform uh success story, I would say. There there are there are also pockets of those who have not had that kind of uh, luck, shall we say.
0: do do you also think there was a sense of uh jealousy, maybe like these people have Already succeeded in setting up a business, or they're bringing their you know trade networks or whatever else they have their enterprise with them. Was there some of that as well, probably?
2: Um, maybe not in the initial period when the Sindhis were just establishing themselves, but I think over time, yes, I'm sure it would have developed. Do
1: you remember the uh, Piltri Camp uh, researcher Banu, who and the uh, Kothurkar. They, they gave them a list of adjectives to describe the Sindhis, to describe people of different communities. And ones that were picked for Sindhis were, um, I mean, I can't remember them all, but things like flashy and uh, negative. But then that's because culturally they were different.
2: Yeah, that's true. That's true. So they had to deal with all this negativity and then still go on and succeed. But they also had,
1: at some level, there were things like the Bombay Refugee Act.
2: So the Bombay Refugee Act was also another part of this kind of negative discrimination in a sense. Bombay City was a preferred destination of many Sindhi Hindus because Sindh had earlier been governed from Bombay. And colleges in Sindh were affiliated to Bombay University. And then you had many merchants, say Bhaiwans or Chikarpuris, who had businesses here and homes here. And others had friends and family here, you know. So right. many, many Sindhi Hindus wanted to come to Bombay. But Bombay had had a housing shortage even before partition. And the refugee camps got full very fast. So they could not cope with the number of refugees. And by the end of 1947 itself, even before the large wave of migration that came uh, after the January 6th riot, even before that, Bombay was saturated. Ships from Karachi were beginning to be diverted to ports in Kathiawar. Mm -hmm. And people who came by train were taken to, not to Bombay, but to Gujarat, Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh. But some Sindhi Hindus didn't want to go. So some of them were squatting illegally at the Alexandra docks where they had disembarked from the ships that had brought them from Karachi. The docks had become unsanitary. There were some thefts of goods lying at the docks as well. And earlier, I think in October, this was October 47, the Sindhis had also clashed with the Bombay government over their access to the Sion hospital barracks, and they had taken out of procession protesting and so on. So the Bombay government didn't know how to deal with the Sindhis. And as a result, uh, it enacted the Bombay Refugees Act in 1948. And according to the act, all refugee families had to register at the nearest police station, along with the names and addresses and all physical characteristics of each person in the family. They had to report their arrival and departure from any city. They had to carry their registration papers with them at all time. And this was their only form of ID, you know, only valid form. And if you fail to report, the head of the family was liable to be punished. And the beauty was this Bombay Refugee Act applied to all Sindhi Hindus, whether they were in the camps or not. Many Sindhi Hindus who were middle class, upper middle class, they deeply resented this. These kind of rules and regulations are treating us like quasi-criminals. It's seeking to control us and humiliate us. So there were a lot of protests. But at the same time, I have to say that it was not very effective, because many Sindhi Hindus didn't bother with it. Finally, in 1952, uh, Ram Jaitmalani, who was then a young up-and-coming lawyer, he fought a case on behalf of one Gobit Ram After that case, this Bombay Refugee Act was struck down by the High Court. According to Ram Jeetmalani in our court, he says, The government thought swarms of people have come. They require required to be kept in order. They may even hold communal agendas and cause riots, which had happened in groups of other refugees. So, Jaitmalani says that was the assumption behind the act. But it was so humiliating. Sindhis felt that they were being treated like animals, like buffaloes and cows. Indians have a right under the constitution of India to settle down in any part of the country. You can't just remove them arbitrarily. And and he was absolutely right and fortunately he won that case.
0: But this didn't just apply to the Sindhis, right? It was to all refugees or was it specific to the Sindhi Hindus?
2: In Bombay, and uh, here I'm talking about the Bombay state, not just Bombay city. Bombay state at that time included large parts of Gujarat and Maharashtra, parts of Karnataka as well. There were some Punjabis, a few Punjabi Sikhs as well, but by and large it was Sindhis. So it was the Sindhis who were protesting
1: against this. I also have a problem with using the word refugee. I mean, a refugee is a stateless person, right? We can't technically call the Sindhi the displaced Sindhis, refugees because they were in their own country? Uh, Yes and no. As per the governments, they were supposed to stay
2: on in Pakistan, right? They were not supposed to leave. Right. And the fact is that they fled for their lives as we have just talked about. They fled for Mm -hmm. their safety. So they did come looking for refuge. Now, many Sindhi Hindus themselves did not like being called refugees. They found it humiliating. Uh, It implied that they were uh, helpless in a sense, Mm -hmm. you know. I feel that they were definitely refugees, that they had come looking for refuge and they had gotten it. This is the other thing that they had only lived in Pakistan, at least whichever ones had actually lived in Pakistan, for just a matter of months. They had always identified with India. So earlier it was undivided India and now this is India. So they did come as refugees. You had internal refugees as well, even within a country. It's not like you have to cross a border to be a refugee. So they had come as refugees, but they did not feel that they were moving to a different country. Even though technically the new border had come into being, I met Indians who asked me that why do Sindhis feel like they, they always belong to India? Why don't they they are Pakistani? And then I have to explain that if they were Pakistani, it was just a matter of a few
1: months. And but you also hear people like I've heard people saying that my roots lie in Pakistan, which is so not true because you left. You know, your root is because Pakistan was created. Your roots are not in Pakistan. You can say that your roots are in sin. Hmm, that is true. That is true. It's a good good uh, uh,
2: distinction that you're making, which probably they are not. They, they identified with undivided
1: India. So about that time, back in the late 40s and early 50s, you know, you mentioned that there was a housing crisis already in Bombay and set up this housing board. Uh, in 1948. And uh, as far as I know, a lot of people who I've spoken to, and it always surprises me the number of buildings that came up, and largely mm-hmm. they built for themselves. Right. Took the loan from the housing board, they collected money from their own family who they wanted to as their neighbors, and uh, they built uh, a building. And then once they figured out how to do it, they went on and did the next thing and did that. But what I discovered recently, and this is actually courtesy you because you know you told me mm-hmm. check out Sejram Gidwani and Ahmedabad, mm-hmm. so I did that. And what I found is that Sejram Gidwani actually left his job in uh, as a head of Sarabai Mills in Ahmedabad, and he took up an honorary position as the chairman of the housing board. Okay. Uh, he was the first chairman, he didn't uh, accept a salary. Now, of course, we need a researcher to go in and look at the minutes of those meetings and things like that to find out who said what and who actually made this. But I love to think that, you know, having people like him and also H.P. Sheldasani, who was the municipal commissioner, of course, in, at that time, they didn't want to identify themselves as Sindhi. You know, in public, because they were Indians. You were like an upright, principled person. You wouldn't align yourself with your community, even if it was a community that was so devastated. You know, we know that people are so against uh, J.V. Kriplani because he didn't. He still absolutely was yes. such a principled person. He just was an Indian and feel betrayed by that. But mm. I feel, and I'd love to have somebody, you know, I guess we need somebody who will. Um, yeah, there are people doing research on this who'll see what who really made those decisions where um, you know, sign was the the mud 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 flats of sign were developed as a new district when mm. he was a municipal commissioner. And of course, the huge help given by the housing board which everybody couldn't make use of, but somebody with a commercial bent of mind, somebody who had built buildings in Sindh or had some experience with contracting could do, and so many did.
2: Okay, now, when you talk about Sain, I think it was
1: Nanik uh, Motwani, Nanik Mutwani who in he gave his funds, but I think the actual allocation of the land was done in H. B. Shibbasani's time. Could well have been Nanik Motwani who campaigned for it. Again, we don't really know. But yeah, Nani Pumutwani, um, he was from uh, the family of... The
0: the Chicago microphones
1: and stuff. Yes, yes, yes. And then after partition, of course. Should we talk a little bit about those Bombay people and those wealthy people who opened their homes to uh, the influx of refugees? Everyone in Bombay, all the Sindhis who had been living in Bombay
2: from before, they they were like, uh, I think... To a man, uh, although that sounds very sexist, to a person, to almost all of them, without any exception, they open their doors and their hearts. And I've heard this phrase repeatedly that at night there would just be a sea of white because there would be just mattresses covered with bedsheets, all covering the floor because there was no place to to, uh, sleep, you know. And there were so many people in the house. Like when my mother came, she and her sisters were living with their eldest sister who had been married, and there was no place for my mother to sleep. She had to sleep under the dining table. You know, she was the youngest, so she had to sleep there. Each of these houses were filled with uh, their friends and family and so on. And sometimes for a few weeks, sometimes for a few months. And until, of course, uh, they were able to move on and find their own houses, you know. And then you had things like you're talking about uh, these Sindhi uh, constructions. So you had Sham Nivas and Nanik Nivas and in kulaba Sindh Chambers and Moini mansions and so on. And then later, of course, you had the Navjeevan societies that came up. That was thanks to J T Sipai Malani.
1: So this has really been so interesting. You're looking at first of all the horrible thing that happened, and then some of the negative ways in which the they were received. And what I really love about this, what we just talk about, is how welcome, how welcoming the rest of the community was, and how people um, opened their homes and sacrificed their personal comfort and just. Uh, Try to. I mean, it must have been a terrible time. Your heart seeing everybody just homeless suddenly overnight. It was not just that they
2: opened their homes. Many of these Sindhi businessmen, like Nanak Motwani of Chicago Radio, or uh, uh, Mohan Advani of Blue Star, and many other com- many other businessmen who owned companies, they gave them jobs. They gave these same family and friends would come from sin, and they gave them jobs, you know, in their companies. So that mm-hmm. was a
1: tremendous boost. That was a really big thing because the economy wasn't the way it is today that you can just, you know, open up a new branch and um, bring people on. It wasn't that your business was going to grow by taking on new people. It was an expense to start with. On
2: the plus side, these were people who were likely educated yeah. and, and
1: they didn't need references because they were known. That element of trust was also there. So this has been a really, really interesting session. Before we end, Nandita, I want to ask you, how did you get into the study of, uh, you know, get into this area? Because your qualifications are from another field, right? I've always been
2: very flexible in that regard. And uh, I just go where my heart takes me as such.
1: You started off with a different qualification, right? Before you did your master's in anthropology.
2: Yeah, so I actually have a CA, you know, I'm a chartered accountant, but I actually worked in investment banking with Merrill Lynch for a while. Yeah, but it was really not my cup of tea at the end of the day. So then I did a degree in anthropology. When I finished my degree, it was 1997, and that was the 50th anniversary of partition and of Indian independence. I was keen on doing some work on the Sindhi community, and I was introduced at that time to Ashish Nandi who, uh, of course, is, you know, very well known. He's one of the foremost intellectuals in India. And at that time, he was doing this uh, project on partition violence and memories, things we've talked about in our talk today. And he wanted me, obviously, to cover Sindhis. I started out interviewing Sindhis who had witnessed or experienced violence. And let me tell you, it was very difficult to find them. Um. It was very difficult to find them, simply because not too many Sindhis had, because there was relatively that much less violence. But that was eye-opening in itself. It just increased and snowballed from there, you know. And the more I interviewed them, the more they told me about Sindh and their life before partition, the more I wanted to see Sindh. And one day I ended up doing that too.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So we are going to have to do another session with you, Nandita. We haven't finished asking you our partition questions. We'd like to continue doing that. We want to hear about your visits to Sindh. And there are so many other aspects of your work that we would really, really like you to share with our listeners on another podcast.
0: Yes, absolutely. And it was lovely having you on, Narita. Thank you so much for taking the time.
1: And thank you for your insights and for so much knowledge. And I would totally recommend uh, the book, uh, The Making of Exile, which I feel is like a Bible for anyone who wants to understand Cindy's partition story.
2: Thanks a lot, Charles, for saying that. And thank you both for inviting me on this program. Thank you so much
0: bye and to all our listeners take care don't forget to follow us on tapestry pod and we'll be back with another episode soon see you allah munata visarun allah munata visarun o sindh jaan nazara sindh jaan nazara o sindh nazara GS in the GS in the Varadian, Sindhi Topi, a Jerakavaradian. GS in the GS in the Varadian, Sindhi Topi, a Jerakavaradian.